And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to explain it clearly and accurately. May the Holy Spirit have his way in our hearts as we do so. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Matthew, and it's got 28 chapters, and we are in uh, the beginning part here yet. Chapters 5 through 7. The pronouncements, of course, the theme is uh, Christ the King. And then uh, this section in chapters 5 through 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, deals with the pronouncements of the king proving his judicial right to the throne as seen in his wisdom kingdom teaching. Well, we now come to the uh, formal conclusion of what is called the greatest sermon ever given, namely this Sermon on the Mount as seen here in Matthew 5 through 7. The sermon proper ends at chapter 7, verse 12. And so we're going to get to the end of the sermon proper today. And then the remainder of the chapter deals with a challenge, a fourfold challenge, really, to how are you going to now respond to the message of the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Will we commit to Christ and his teaching or not? Well, there's a real debate as to whether Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12, Uh, what we're studying this morning. There's a real debate as to whether uh, this section deals specifically just with the issue of judging. We talked about last week in the first six verses of of the chapter. Does it just deal with, is it making application to the issue of judging? uh, Or is it broader than this? Uh, I I think it, it certainly does apply to the issue of judging uh, properly and improperly. But I tend to think it's broader than that, having application to all that Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount related to how we as kingdom citizens should now live. And a key reason to hold to this view is uh, the bookends that we find here in the Sermon on the Mount. And what I mean by the bookends are uh, the two emphasis on the law and the prophets at the front end of the sermon and at the back end of the sermon. So note, Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This comes early in the, in the sermon. And then at the end here, in Matthew 7, 12, therefore, whatever uh, you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Same formula, the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is saying is lining up with the law and the prophets in some way. And uh, we will unpack that as we go along here. Let me give you just a little bit more background before we get into the study here. Uh, Jesus in Matthew seven twelve, with the golden rule, as we call it, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, Jesus in, in seven twelve with the golden rule, concludes the exposition that he began in chapter 5, verse 17 which in turn rests upon the Beatitude directives, etc., that he gave in chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Thus, Matthew seven twelve in effect, summarizes all that he taught about human relationships, which, of course, rests upon a proper relationship with God. What am I saying in all of that? What I'm saying is really the golden rule kind of summarizes all that Christ is emphasizing in the various directives that he's giving on the Sermon on the Mount. You could summarize it in, in this way. How should we then live? Live by the golden rule. That's what Christ is emphasizing for kingdom citizens. Now, living by the golden rule won't get you to heaven. 
I know there's, there's moralists out here. They're fine moral people, so to speak. At least they put up that veneer. But that won't get you to heaven. Uh, Christ is the Savior. The only way you can get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. It's not through what you do, but what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. We call that grace. It's uh, favor. It's unearned. It's undeserved. It's not worked for. It's what Jesus did. We have to swallow our pride and say, I can't do it. Jesus did it all for me. But now, as I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, how should I then live? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with. You understand, Christ emphasizes repentance in chapter 4. And if you are truly repentant, here is how then you should live as brought out in the Sermon on the Mount, which could be summarized in the Golden Rule, which is what we're building to this morning. Now, uh, Jesus, in saying that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, is saying that he came to make it possible for his kingdom people to now live according to the moral intent of the law. Now, no one can do this within their own power. Uh, to try and do so amounts to outward legalistic form of righteousness, which is really represented by what the scribes and the Pharisees were all about. It's all about external conformity, uh, what I'm doing in my own legalistic way. That won't get you there. In contrast to this, Christ came to bring about an inward dynamic in which we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, which allows us to now live according to the moral intent of the law. And this is what Christ meant in Matthew 5.20 in addressing practical righteousness. And what I mean by practical righteousness, when, when we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, immediately, positionally, we are righteous. We have what we call imputed righteousness. It's put to our account. And we are seen as holy before God. And you can't get any more holy than being washed by the blood of Jesus. That is your position forever and ever in Jesus Christ. We're dealing with how then we should live after we come to faith in Christ. After that positional uh, righteousness. Now practical righteousness needs to be worked out in our lives. That's what we're dealing with. And this is what Christ says in Matthew 5.20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Again, he's talking about practical righteousness. How you should then live. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, your lives are going to be different. If you're really a kingdom citizen on your way to the kingdom... The righteousness that you live out in your life is going to be different than that legalistic, pharisaical righteousness that they're living according to, is what he's saying. Christ is talking about changed lives on the basis of true repentance as seen in chapters 3 and 4. Repentance and faith is an inward heart dynamic that affects the life. And this is what Christ came to bring about. He came to fulfill this and to, to bring about changed lives that align with the moral intent of the law through the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Pastor Dwight, do you have a verse for that? i got two of them. Actually, I've got more than this, but uh, let's look at Romans uh, 8, 3, and 4. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. What was the problem? Why couldn't people keep the law? Well, it was our, our, we had a flesh problem. We can't live up to the high standard of the law. We just couldn't do it. Nobody can do it. Keep all the, all the rules. And by the way, the Mosaic Law consisted of 613 laws, actually. 
you know, you have the basic Ten Commandments, but then building on that a whole lot of other laws. The point I want you to see is that this higher standard of righteous living, higher than the ritualistic, legalistic righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, is what Christ has in view throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. It is application of this higher standard of righteousness that Christ now addresses in totality as he brings his sermon to a conclusion in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. Well, that's my introduction. And if there's any questions, please hold them. All right, let's continue. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Wow, what's this talking about? Remember, we've just been talking about judging. Improper judging, as well as proper discernment and evaluation. We talked about that last week. And now that's followed up with this intensive emphasis on prayer. Ask, seek, and knock are all descriptive of prayer. And they're all in the present tense, indicated keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The sense is we're going to need God's continual help to live out Christ's higher standard of righteousness as presented in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to need some help on this one. You're going to need lots of help. You're going to need to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. And this is most certainly true in this matter of judging. Just discussed in the preceding verses. In order for us to see clearly and make proper discernment and judgment calls, we need God's help. And we need it constantly. You know, life is always about everything. It's, you're, you're making discernment calls, right? I get a call from a, uh, a person who doesn't speak very good English from, you know, I'm uh, and wanting to talk to uh, somebody. <laughs> Hello? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, right away, my mind is working in a certain direction, right? right? Yours is too, right? Am, am, am I really going to want to get into a prolonged conversation with, with this person? Uh, so, you know, we're making judgment calls all the time. And to do it right, we need God's help. I mean, we need help to see the beam in our own eye. We certainly need help once we got the beam out to, to help our brother with the, the splinter in his eye. We need help discerning who are the dogs and who are the swine that I shouldn't cast my pearls before. And we really need real wisdom not to call it like it is in, in front of their faces, that's for sure. But uh, we need help on these things. J. Vernon McGee was a pastor for many years, and then he began a ministry called Through the Bible. Perhaps you've heard of it, uh, in which he taught verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, five years take to go through it. And then he'd do the same thing, uh, another five years, five-year cycle. And what made him so popular was that he emphasized, in effect, the Bible in shoe leather. Uh, he brought it down to where it was very practical for the average person. He made lots of practical application along the way. Well, on these verses here in Matthew 7, uh, verses 7 and 8, he wrote this. How to meet people of this world is the greatest problem facing a child of God. Every day we rub shoulders with princes and paupers, gentlemen and scoundrels, true and false professors. Some folk need our friendship and help, and we need them, and we ought to pull them to our hearts. Others are rascals and will destroy us. And we need to push them from us. 
how are we to know? To ask, seek, and knock definitely refers to this problem. While I was a pastor in downtown Los Angeles for 21 years, I met people from all walks of life. Some people would need my help, but others would try to put a knife in my back. You would be surprised how many times I've been fooled by people. God wants to help you in these matters. Yeah, we need help in these matters, right? We're dealing with people all the time. How should I respond? What should my, my response be here as far as evaluating the situation, making judgment calls, discernment calls? This is the immediate context. The matter of making proper judgment calls related to logs and splinters, related to dogs and swine. We need to constantly be asking, seeking, and knocking on God's door to help us properly discern and thereby properly respond to each situation as it comes at us. You say, well, I don't need any help. I can do it. Well, just be prepared. You're going to be in trouble. And God wants to help us. Everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be opened. The problem is we so often try to go it alone without God's help. And that doesn't turn out well. God is telling us we need his help in dealing with people. But again, while I think this has application to the matter of properly judging, which it certainly does, I think it also has application to all manner of kingdom living, to humility, to purity, to sincerity, to love, and to all the righteous standards presented in the Sermon on the Mount. We need help with all these things, which is why we are to ever be asking, seeking, and knocking. Note uh, just some of the high points as far as the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lots of points in this sermon. Uh, in the greatest sermon ever given, we certainly have more than three points. You would agree with that, right? Nope, you won't. Okay, well, that's okay. We're, we're still friends, you know. Uh, we need God's help to what? Well, we need God's help to discern and judge properly. To not worry and depend upon God. To keep the proper focus in serving our master. To not be hypocritically pious. To live out how Christ taught us to pray. To love our enemies. To be truth tellers. To be people of fidelity and sexual purity. Uh, to not be retaliatory or hateful. To live out the Beatitudes uh, such as being pure in heart. We need, we need God's help in all these things. All the time. Asking, seeking, knocking implies a state of constant need. We're not talking vain repetition. We're talking serious needs that are coming at us all the time. We need God's help on a constant basis to live out his kingdom standards, especially in relationship to how we treat one another, how we respond to people. I don't know about you, but I fail to live up to the standard as I should. And I will say something or I will do something and then I'll think to myself, is that really up to Jesus' kingdom standard? And it drives me back to saying, Lord, I need your help. Lord, help me to be discerning. Lord, help me to live out what I should, to be Christ-like. <clears throat> and here is Jesus' point. He didn't just give us a bunch of kingdom directives. And then say, as those who are citizens of the kingdom, who are ultimately headed for the kingdom, here's how you should live. He didn't just leave it there. He didn't just, in effect, say, now, go do it on your own. He didn't do that. No, here he is giving us the secret 
that will empower us to live it. We need to constantly pray. Constantly be seeking God for discernment and strength. This is right in keeping with 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which says, pray without ceasing. Praying and powerful living, obedient living, go together. You see, praying acknowledges our dependence upon God. And we need his help. In James chapter 1, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and this is wisdom related to to how should we then live? Godly living, handling whatever situation in a godly way. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. In the whole surrounding context in the Sermon on the Mount, the great majority of the emphasis is on spiritual character and spiritual qualities. This is the great concern. And this is our great need as God's children, to know how to live and then be empowered in the living of it. And God is there for us if we will but ask, seek, and knock. And now Jesus goes on to illustrate this reality. Verse 9, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, they, uh, the way they made bread in the Bible times often looked a, a little bit like a stone, uh, a flat round stone. Uh, but no one would give their child a stone for breakfast. Daddy, I want some breakfast. Oh, I'll be quiet. Here's a stone. Uh, gives new meaning to crunchy. Uh, no. A uh, little bit of pita bread here. Stones. Think they'll notice the difference? Yeah. Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now, there are some snakes that look a little bit like uh, a fish, the form of a fish. But no one in their right mind would give their child a serpent to eat instead of a fish. Right? Not going to do that. Daddy, what's for dinner? Oh, you know, the usual stones and serpents. That's what I have to offer. No sane person would do this to their child. Even the thought of it is repulsive. And so here is the application. Verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Christ here shows that even though we as believers know God as our Father, we still have a sin nature. Notice what He said. Uh, You being evil. Uh, You know, there's there's still an evil bent that we deal with, right? Even as those who know God as Father. As he goes on to say, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So we still know evil in that. We still have a sin nature. We have what the Bible calls the flesh, that old Adamic nature. Now, praise the Lord, that's not all that we have. We now, as born-again Christians, have a new nature. And that new nature always wants to do what's right. But the flesh... It wants to do what's wrong. And so we feel the pull here. And praise the Lord, we have the the power maker, the the deal breaker, if we yield, is the Holy Spirit. 
We also have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do the right thing if we walk in the Spirit. That's why the Bible says walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But we have to be obedient. We have to walk in the Spirit. So, so we know this reality. We are still evil in the sense that we still have the sin nature. We still feel that pull. None of us are perfect in practice, although we are in process. And he who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is building uh, Christ-likeness into our lives. This, this process of, of uh, sanctification that goes on in our lives because of God's uh, work in our lives, disciplining us as a, as a responsible, loving, heavenly Father. And yet, we're not perfect. We are in process. Nevertheless, although we are tainted by sinfulness... Yet we still know how to give good gifts to our children. We know what is good for them, and we desire to provide for them properly. Now, if this is true of us sinful beings, how much more will our Holy Father give good things to his children who ask him? The contrast is drawn to make a point of emphasis. God wants to give us good things. He does. Enriching things that will empower our spiritual lives. On another occasion, in what in many ways is a parallel passage, Luke replaces good things with Holy Spirit. Note uh, this in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. As I say, essentially very close to a parallel passage. We think it was spoken on another occasion, but very much close in terms of a parallel here. And Luke eleven thirteen says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This indicates that what Christ essentially has in mind are spiritual gifts, things related to the Holy Spirit. Related to spiritual growth and and spiritual empowerment. It is by the Spirit that we are enabled to live out the commands of Christ. And this is really a gifting from God. It's God's grace, God's gift at work in our lives. In view is being able to respond to people in life circumstances with God's wisdom. That is in a godly way as brought out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's by the Spirit that we are able to properly discern. It is by the Spirit that we can love and live out the fruit of the Spirit. It is by the Spirit that we enjoy all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. But note the emphasis here. And this is a key emphasis here. We must ask. We must ask. There's a tremendous emphasis on ask, 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 ask. This shows that Christ is dealing with practical sanctification and not our position as God's children. We don't have to ask about our position because that's a settled matter forever and ever. In terms of practical sanctification, God is happy to give us what we need spiritually, but he wants us to ask. If we lack wisdom, we are to ask. If we are struggling with temptation, we are to ask for help. Whatever our need may be related to our walk and interpersonal relationships, we are instructed to ask, to seek, and knock, and to do so persistently. You see, you can't ask too much 
and say, well, Lord, I know I've used up my quota for today. I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. No, no. There is no limit. You can't ask too much or too often. Some people say foolish things like, well, it's just a little thing. I really don't want to bother God with it. Can you imagine anything being big to God? Uh, it's, you know, all relative here. God wants us to be constantly depending on him and looking to him. The issue here is not informing God, because God already knows everything that we need. In Matthew 6, 8, Jesus said, your, your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. The reason for persistent asking is because of our constant need for divine help. And our asking indicates our realization of continual dependence upon God. So God wants us to recognize our total dependence upon Him. As Jesus said in John 15, 5, Without me, you can do nothing. Here is the point. Jesus wants us to recognize our continual dependence upon our Father God, but He also wants us to realize that our Father is a giver who wants to bestow His riches upon us. Jesus wants us to have the proper view of our Father. God wants to share with us. He wants to fill our lives with good things, the good things of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit's empowerment. See, God is not some miserly giver. No, He wants to give His children good spiritual gifts. You see, all these good gifts come from God. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And of course, in context, he's talking about wisdom, not close context there. And comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, if it is truly good for us, which is to say for our, our ultimate good and God's glory, and they really go together because our whole purpose as God's children is to bring glory to God. So if it's really for our, our good and God's glory, if it is truly good for us, then we can be assured that God will give it to us. The only condition is that we ask. God wants us to ask. Remember, James said, you do not have because you do not ask. How much is left in the Father's storehouse simply because we do not ask? We need to do more asking. Not selfish asking, because James rebukes that. Not selfish asking, but truly asking for our ultimate spiritual good and God's glory. God is such a gracious God. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack. Psalm 34, 10, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Psalm 84, 11, the Lord, is, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What? No good thing will he withhold. Unless, of course, you're not asking. He does want you to ask. I love the psalmist's testimony. It's good to think about this. And, you know, Jesus just taught us about we should not worry. Psalmist's testimony. Psalm... 37, 25, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. God has been faithful. He takes care of his own. 
Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God shall supply all your need, not your want, supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, if this is true physically, how much more so spiritually, as our spiritual lives are ultimately more important than our physical lives? As Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I love this verse in John 1:16. You know, my new King James reads like this, and of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. But the Amplified brings it out, the Amplified Bible, for out of his fullness, that is the superabundance of his grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace. Could literally be translated grace piled upon grace, or as the Amplified puts it, spiritual blessing upon spiritual blessing, favor upon favor, and gift heaped upon gift. What a tremendous emphasis. You know, every gift is a, every breath is a gift from God, right? You start thanking God for every breath you get, and you really won't have time to do anything else, right? <laughs> and you better make it short, because another breath is coming quickly, Right? Uh, Note the tremendous emphasis on you will receive if you ask. It's there for the asking. Yes, we ask, uh, you know, in keeping with Jesus' name. We're praying Jesus' name, which is all for his glory. And again, our purpose is ultimately uh, God's glory. Our good and God's glory go together. But note this. Tremendous emphasis. Six times. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Everyone who asks, receives. Who seeks, finds. Knocks, it will be opened. There's a six-fold affirmation here that those who ask God for good things will get them. If it's good for you and you ask, rest assured, you'll get it. You'll get it. The only qualifier is that we don't always know what is truly good for us, right? You say, boy, I'm going to put this to the, the test. Lord, I'd like, I sincerely would like for you to bless me with a good gift of a million dollars today. <laughs> right? Is that really good for you? Is that really healthy for you? You know people that win the lottery? Big money? They're a wreck. Most of them end up being a disaster. It's not good for them. God knows what's good for you. Maybe what's good for you is that you need to depend upon God day by day for your daily bread. Maybe that's really what's ultimately good for you is that you learn to walk in faith and not have all this superabundance. Maybe that's what's really good for you. You know, we often don't really know what is good for us. You know how I know that? Well, it's because the Bible tells us this, right? Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. And what is our weakness? We have a weakness. We have a problem. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. We don't really know how to even properly pray a lot of the time. Praying for something that's not really good for me. What do you think God's going to say to that? No. No. In His goodness to us, He says no lots of times. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit helps us in our praying. So, you know, it's, the right thing is being communicated. Uh, maybe our heart's right, but what we're asking for is not really properly uh, right. The real challenge is to align our prayers with what is really good for us. 
But when we do, our gracious Father always says yes. If it's really ultimately good for you, God will give it. That's what Jesus is emphasizing here. And then we come to verse 12. Therefore, which connects with what he has already been bringing out. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The word therefore indicates that this principle in verse 12, the golden rule, is connected to what has already been stated. As shown earlier, this formula, according to the law and the prophets, is a bookend for the beginning of the sermon, as well as for the end of the sermon, as seen in Matthew 5.17 and 7.12 respectively. Uh, John Phillips has a good summary statement here. where he writes, embodied in the Mosaic Code and amplified in the prophetic word, the golden rule is the underlying principle of all morality, especially in relationship to human relationships, which is the great emphasis here. It is pointed out that all other religious, uh, or that other religious leaders, not all, but other religious leaders have often stated the underlying principle here in negative terms. But Jesus is the first one on record, stating it in positive terms. For example, the Jewish rabbi Hillel said, quote, What is hateful to yourself, do not do to someone else. The Apocrypha said, quote, What you yourself hate, to no man do. And the Stoics said, quote, What you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. You see, in each case... It's stated in the negative. But here comes Jesus, and he states it in the positive, in commonly what is called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule. Where do we get it? Stated in the positive sense, Christ is the one who brought this to us. Or as the verse specifically says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This principle of treating others the way you want to be treated serves as a good summary of the moral law represented in the law and the prophets. John MacArthur says, man's basic problem is preoccupation with self. In the final analysis, every sin results from preoccupation with self. We sin because we are totally selfish, totally devoted to ourselves rather than to God and others. How we treat others is not to be determined by how we expect them to treat us or by how we think they should treat us, but by how we would want them to treat us. How we treat others is to be determined by how we want them to treat us. What a wonderful principle to govern human relationships. It's a kingdom principle. J.C. Ryle wrote, This truth settles a hundred different points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. This principle will cover a multitude of issues that come at us all the time. Over ten years ago, we had uh, new carpet installed in our church auditorium. It was not done right, so we had it all ripped out and had it redone. You know what? It still wasn't right. So, 
we didn't really want to pay for all this when it wasn't right. What to do? Uh, I wrote, uh, we wrestled with this and grappled with this. How many times are you going to take it out? <laughs> Redo it. Uh, I wrote to the owner of, of the company, and this is what I said to him. I said, as we have prayed and thought about this, uh, we elders, uh, we believe that this is a case where we should love our neighbor, uh, neighbor, one who is near as, as myself. In Matthew seven twelve, Jesus said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So we have tried to put ourselves in your shoes and ask what is proper and fair in light of all the factors. It is true that the carpet is not installed properly as even an impartial third party indicated. The pattern does not match, match up. The seams are not well done, etc. We realize that you have tried to make it right. Redid it once already. But it is still not right. As such, we have to live with it. We think it proper to cover your actual expenses. As a matter of conscience, we would like for you to determine what you think we still owe you of the remaining balance, and we will pay it. The owner wrote back to me, Dear Pastor Oswald, Your quote from the Bible hit home with me. This is just the way I've always tried to live my life. Your proposal is very fair in light of all the circumstances that have taken place. He then told me what his expenses were, deducted an extra $500, and we paid the rest of the bill. You know what? That settled it. We took care of it Jesus' way. We took care of it the golden rule way. Let me think about this from, from your perspective here. The Ten Commandments consist of what we call the two tablets of the law. The first tablet is the first four commands that are God-oriented in nature. The last six commandments all relate to human relationships. That's why we call them uh, the two tablets of the law. You know, these are God-oriented. That shall have no other gods before me. Uh, not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But then these are all human-oriented in the sense of human relationships. Honor your father and mother, not kill, etc., etc., etc. Well, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary says this. This, speaking of the golden rule, this summary of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, is a restatement of the second table of the law. And rests upon the first. For man's relation to God is always basic to his relation to to his fellows. It's a good summary statement. What we have in the golden rule amounts to a pithy form. Mickey, you're going to like I use that word pithy. Uh, what we have in the golden rule amounts to a pithy form of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, which is really a summary of the second table of the law. Those who truly live this way actually fulfill the moral standard of the law and the prophets. Note this emphasis in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, not murder, steal, bear false witness, covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a golden rule. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's the point Christ is making here. And Paul, uh, Paul was consistent. Galatians 5, he says, verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in this one word, 
Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's, if you were to summarize it in a pithy way, this is it. Live according to the golden rule. You see, there's a glory of God moral, ethical standard. But nobody can live up to this in our own strength. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This glory of God standard. We all, we all come short of it. This standard was represented in the law of Moses, but no one could live up to it. Then Christ came along and modeled it perfectly. And not only that, he taught obedience to the moral law of God as being an internal issue of the heart instead of just an outward external conformity, which was reflective of the righteousness standard of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, Christ not only taught his disciples how they should then live in keeping with true repentance, but he also sent the Holy Spirit to empower them to live consistent with this kingdom standard. It is this standard that is presented in the Sermon on the Mount, which is summarized in the Golden Rule. You see, the Golden Rule is essentially the rule of love, which is now to govern God's people. We're not under the law of Moses as a, as a system, a code that we live under. But we are now under the law of Christ, made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, first and foremost. Love. The new commandment that Christ gave us is what? To love one another as he loved us. So we're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And those that live out the law of love, in essence, fulfill the spirit and intention of the moral law represented in the law and the prophets. It is this standard of righteous living that is indicative of those who will enter the kingdom. Which brings us full circle to what Christ said in Matthew 5.20. Remember? He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness, how you live exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, loveless legalism, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless the law of love governs your life, you're not going there. You're just deceived. It is the law of love lived out in the life that is indicative of true repentance and faith, which is reflective of those who will indeed enter the kingdom. If legalism governs your life and not love, you're not going to enter the kingdom. I don't care how legalistic you are. This is the difference between the righteousness that will enter the kingdom and that which will not. The golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you is in essence the fulfillment of the moral teachings of the law and the prophets. And again, it is this standard that Christ came to bring about in terms of the fulfillment of it in the lives of his followers. This standard of righteousness demanded in the Old Testament is now fulfilled in the lives of believers as they walk in the Spirit. And that's the key. We need to walk in the Spirit and thus fulfill the kingdom standard as presented in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're not in the kingdom, but we're headed there. We're kingdom citizens, and we are to live accordingly. Well, this brings us to the conclusion of the formal Sermon on the Mount. 
the greatest sermon ever given. What remains in the rest of the chapter is a challenge to how people will now respond to Christ and his teaching. This teaching demands a response, you see. Either people will repent and align with it, or they will not. We have noted that the Sermon on the Mount, in the main, addresses those who are true disciples of Christ. You know, our Father, uh, who art in heaven, and so forth, as far as the, the, the prayer that he taught us, and so forth. However, as noted in verse 28, at the end of the chapter, many people, in addition to his disciples, had been gathering to hear what Christ was saying. Evangelical commentary on the Bible says, Jesus addresses, addresses persons who have heard his teachings, are aware of the options, and must now choose one gate or the other. What are you going to do with this? Your life comes down to choices. And the, and the greatest choice in the world is, what are you going to do with Christ? What are you going to do with what he says? Are you going to follow the, the Pharisees and their religious legalism? Or are you going to say, oh... Christ is right. I need to repent. I need God's help. As I say, 712 concludes the Sermon on the Mount. But what now follows in 713 through 27 are four warnings given to those listening about the importance of applying it. And these four warnings present four contrasts. Note these four warnings. There's two ways that we're going to look at briefly this morning. Two trees, two professions, and two builders. So application. What are you going to do with this? Again, it's general here. Uh, The disciples, largely addressed earlier, true followers, those who really know God as their father. But now it's broader. He's making this, this, uh, this basic application. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Christ makes a contrast between the narrow gate and the wide gate. Where are you at this morning? The gate is the entryway that puts you on the path to your destination. You're going somewhere. The people hearing the message of Christ were at a crossroads, you see. He's brought them to a crossroads. You're going to go the way of the Pharisees? You're going to go the way that I'm teaching. It lines up with kingdom righteousness, kingdom living. They're at a crossroads. The teachings of Christ and the person of Christ go together. To accept or reject the one is to accept or reject the other. You can't say, well, I'm going with Christ, but I'm rejecting his teaching. No, it doesn't work that way. They go together. Stanley Saints says, just as a tree is known by its fruit... So the gate is known by the way. The gate is mentioned first as this is the starting place, representing the place of conversion. That is the narrow gate. This is the place of decision. This is this leads to the way, which is uh, the course that is followed once the choice is made. So Christ invites people to come in by the narrow gate. The narrow gate is, frankly, Christ himself. The narrow gate is Christ's message of repentance and faith. Christ and his message. This is the way in. This is the gate. This is how you come in. 
It's narrow in that you can't add anything to it. It's narrow in that one must enter all by themselves with nothing but faith alone. Must be the right kind of faith, a change of mind kind of faith. That is, uh, uh, repentance must be an element of this faith. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So the door is very narrow, or the way is very narrow. The gate, I should say. Acts 4, 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus alone. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The narrow gate is Christ and his gospel message alone. The response that gets you in is repentance and faith alone. John MacArthur says the person who enters the narrow gate must enter alone. We can bring no one else and nothing else with us. Furthermore, God's gate is so narrow that we must go through it naked. It is the gate of self-denial through which one cannot carry the baggage of sin and self-will. When we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, we are testifying to the way of the gospel. Well, in contrast to the narrow gate is the wide gate. It involves the broad way that leads to destruction. This way, you see, is broad because it it requires no repentance. You don't have to repent on on the broad way. You got all this sin baggage with you. Just bring it with you. There's plenty of room on the broad way for all this stuff. One can hold on to all sorts of legalism, ritualism, pride, self-effort, which is the way of the scribes and the Pharisees, total hypocrites. How many times has he denounced hypocrisy in the sermon? But that way ends in destruction. Bible knowledge commentary makes a good summary statement. In light of the whole sermon, it was obvious that Jesus was comparing the wide gate and the broad road to the outward righteousness of the Pharisees. If those listening to Jesus followed the Pharisees' teaching, their path would lead to destruction. The narrow gate and road referred to Jesus' teaching, which which emphasized not external requirements, but internal transformation. It's a heart issue that then works its way out into life. Stanley Toussaint. The two ways would be compared to two forms of righteousness, which he has been contrasting throughout the discourse. Repentance is the narrow gate through which Christ invited his audience to enter. The narrow way represents the restrictions laid upon the one who walks in the way of true righteousness, which the king had just outlined. The broad way is the natural walk of the flesh, characterized oftentimes by Pharisaic hypocrisy and outward righteousness. The word destruction here does not refer to annihilation or extinction, but rather to utter ruin and loss. It is the loss of well-being in a place called ultimately hell or the lake of fire. And notice that Christ said, there are many who go in by it. This is the religious hypocritical way that is so popular. By far the majority of religious people, including nominal Christians, are on this broad way. That leads to eternal destruction. And Christ continues, verse 14. Because narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few, few who find it. 
In contrast to the broad way that leads to destruction is the narrow gate, which leads to the difficult way, which leads to life. And there are relatively few who will find it. There's always a remnant, but only a remnant, never a big picture majority. Frankly, most people are going to hell. The narrow gate leads to the difficult way. The word difficult almost always refers to persecution. D.A. Carson says, So this text says that the way of discipleship is narrow, restricting, because it is the way of persecution and opposition. A major theme in Matthew. And that's consistent. Uh, Notice in Acts 14.22, Paul says here, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. On our way to the kingdom, what should we expect? Many tribulations. Difficult. Difficult is the way. The narrow way is the difficult way because on the way, one can expect to encounter persecution and abuse because of their faith. It's the norm. It's not the easy way, but it is the way that leads to life. And according to Jesus, there are few who find it. Warren Wiersbe wrote, Did your profession of faith in Christ cost you anything? If not, then it was not a true profession. Many people who trust Jesus Christ never leave the broad road with its appetites and associations. They have an easy Christianity that makes no demands on them. Yet Jesus said that the narrow way was hard. We cannot walk on two roads in two different directions at the same time. And John MacArthur says the fact that few are those who will find God's way implies that it is to be sought diligently. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. There are relatively few who are saved. However, we note that in heaven, according to Revelation 7, 9, there is going to be a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So few is to be understood in a relative sense. Sometimes Christians are derogatorily called narrow-minded. You've been called that? Uh, I hope so, because you are narrow-minded. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, according to the world's perspective, you are very narrow-minded. Dare I say, you're going to be a bigot. Uh, narrow-minded. But in truth, according to Jesus, it's only the narrow gate that puts you on the difficult way that leads to life. This is the Jesus way, and it's the only way. The early Christians were called those of the way. The way was what uh, described the movement of the early church in the book of Acts. John Phillips says, There is a narrow way that runs from earth to heaven. And there is a broad way that runs from earth to hell. But there is no road that runs from hell to heaven. The broad road intersects with the narrow road at just one place. Calvary. At the cross, one can leave the broad road. Accept Christ as Savior and start along the narrow way. Ah, that's a great thought. The book of Psalms begin with Psalm 1. By the way, a psalm that everyone should memorize. In my memory work, most days I review Psalm 1. 
is such. I mean, it's, it's the appropriate gateway to the whole book of the Psalms. And what does Psalm 1 have as its theme? Two men, two ways, two destinies. There you have it. This is the ultimate issue. It all comes down to the Jesus way versus any and all other ways. And only the Jesus way will get you to heaven. Here we go. You got the broad way and you got the narrow way. And Jesus has brought them in his teaching right to the crossroads. Which way are you going to go? The broad way to hell or the narrow way to the kingdom? Let me ask you. Maybe you're right here this morning. Which road are you going to take? Jesus invites you. Enter the narrow gate. Enter it. You have to respond. What is your choice? What are you going to do with Jesus? Here's the broad way leading to hell. Many go that way. Few there be that go this way. The road less traveled for sure. It's the way of the cross. That's the way into the kingdom. It's a narrow way. I have a, a picture in my kitchen. If you come to my house, you'll see this. And when uh, I, I love to bring, uh, if I have time, salesmen, cultists, whoever it is, I like to say, come, come with me. I want to show you something. And I'll bring them into my kitchen and I'll show them this picture. And I'll say, do you know what that is? That's a depiction of the narrow way that leads to the kingdom versus the broad way that takes you to hell. And the, the narrow way is the cross. That is what gets you to the kingdom. This broad way takes you straight to hell. Which road are we on? John Oxum wrote this many years ago. To every man there openeth a way, and ways, and a way. And the high soul climbs the highway. And the low soul gropes the low. And in between on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. But to every man there openeth a highway and a low. And every man decideth the way his soul shall go. In the words of Jesus, let's listen to Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus invites you, enter by the narrow gate which leads to life. God help us all to enter in if we're not already in. Jesus alone is the door. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Enter by the narrow gate. Let's stand and have our closing song.